All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiot on Twitter. Uh, really excited about the conversation today with Sam Bankman-Fried who's the co-founder and CEO of FTX, a new crypto derivatives exchange. I guess not that new. Um, you may also know him and his team from Alameda Research, uh, who's frequently uh, ranked on BitMEX's top traders, which is very, very interesting for an OTC uh, firm to, to be as public as you guys. But I guess if you're launching the uh, the derivatives exchange, it yep. makes a little bit more sense to not just hide in the shadows as is typical for OTC uh, brokers and, and traders. Um, so, you know, Sam, uh, first of all, wh- why don't we just take a step back with, with all of our guests. We like to just get the backstory and, and you know, the, like the red pill, um, if you will, for, for how folks got into the industry and like their personal journeys. And then, of course, you know, we'll, we'll come up to the present day of, of you know, how, uh, how you came to be running FTX. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I guess I started out uh, after college joining Jane Street Capital as an ETF trader. Um, and you know, it's on Wall Street for about three years. I uh, then, you know, sometime in 2017, uh, left Jane Street, started up Alameda, and basically just you know took a look at Coin Market Cap and said, "This is completely insane. Like, if this is real, uh, you know, the the price divergences between exchanges is insane. The price movements are insane. It just had a lot of hallmarks of of a market that needed more liquidity." Um, so, uh, you know, started up Alameda and, uh, you know, basically did a bunch of sort of, uh, quantitative trading, arbitrage, liquidity fighting, eventually built out an OTC desk as well. Um, you know, grew to about 15 people or so, um, you know, trading, uh, something like a billion dollars a day of, uh, volume worldwide. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we've been trading for, for, uh, you know, a couple of years. And, uh, you know, one thing that we sort of noticed eventually was, 
boy, I, you know, these derivatives exchanges seem to have, you know, a bunch of issues. And, uh, you know, after sort of continued lack of improvement, eventually, I, you know, started up FTX. That's sort of, you know, a very high level overview of uh, my journey in crypto. And where are you based? I'm based now in Hong Kong. Um, so we've got offices, you know, in a bunch of places, um, but I am, uh, I am mostly full time in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the crypto derivatives landscape. So first of all, there's there's cash settled and uh, physically settled uh, derivatives. Um, there are all types of futures contracts. You can have options. You can have futures forwards. Um, break break down the landscape between some of the existing um, providers uh, and and you know. Uh, Groups like BitMEX and Wobi that have their perpetual products versus the um, more Western-focused uh, derivatives platforms like LedgerX and Bact and, and some of the others, uh, others that have, have come online or are coming online more recently. Um, yeah. And give people a sense for, for uh, A, how you think about positioning for FTX, uh, both from a, a geographic and, and also just a product standpoint. Um, and then also kind of where your thesis is in terms of um, the burning needs in derivatives right now, because um, there, there certainly seems to be, and, and this has played out, um, a certain type of contract that is going to be more useful uh, earlier on um, than others. Yep. And, and, and there's a bit of debate on, on cash settled versus physically settled and kind of where you can do these different things. But um, it's a wild west right now. I think it's it's um, still an insider's game by and large, although that's gradually um, changing and getting a little bit more regulated. Um, what what's kind of the current state of affairs in, in crypto derivatives? Yeah, uh, so it's a good question, and you know, at its heart, what what's sort of the point of a derivative contract? Um, and, and for now, I'm just going to talk about futures and, and or or perpetuals or sort of other. Um, you know, linear products in crypto. So I'm going to ignore options for a second. And, and the reason, um, and, and, you know, the reason I'm going to do this, that's where the vast majority of the activity is today. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, fundamentally, like, the reason that, that these products exist is that people can get leverage. Um, you know, if you want to get, uh, you know, 20x leverage on a trade, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to do that with a delivered spot market. Um, because everyone needs to keep enormous amounts of capital ever at all times to, you know, actually be able to deliver everything that they sell. So, um, so you know, derivatives in, in crypto make up uh, more than half the volume, which is also true in, in sort of a lot of in industries. This is not, you know, this is not specific only to crypto. Um, and, uh, you know, what's sort of the difference between these? The first thing I'd say is that. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think the differences are overhyped a little bit, and, and there's actually a lot of similarities between these, you know, these various projects, uh, products, sorry, but, you know, to the extent that there are differences, I think probably the biggest one is if you look at how, uh, how settlement and collateral work. And so there you can contrast something like CME or, or BACT um, with something like, you know, BitMEX will be or, you know, FTX, where uh, for sort of the U.S. institutional products, they, they follow the Wall Street mold of basically uh, use some sort of intermediary clearing firm. That clearing firm vouches for you in terms of like your collateral, your capital. Um, and, you know, it's like T plus something settlement, often T plus two settlement or something. So you don't settle your PL until a couple days later. Um, 
you know, margin calls are sort of a complicated process, which involves some negotiation with you and your clearing firm and the exchange, but they try not to really have margin calls ever. Um, and you contrast that with something like, you know, BitMEX, which is uh, maybe the extreme example in the other direction where, you know, it's basically just like, not nah, like you deposit some amount of physical Bitcoins to this exchange. And uh, if your account goes under, you just get liquidated. And that's how it works. And you, know, you can withdraw every day. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that if you look at the big difference between those, um, the thing that I would say basically is, is not so much that one system is necessarily better than the other, um, as that it's really, really awkward if not everyone's using the same paradigm. Mm-hmm. And, and be, you know, to, to take a look at that, right, uh, I, I think probably the best thing to do is say, what if you are hedged? What if you have a long position on one exchange and a short position on another? Um, the thing you're terrified of basically is, you know, you're long 100 Bitcoin somewhere, short 100 somewhere else, and Bitcoin goes up 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you haven't made or lost any money basically, right? So you had this hedge on, but one exchange just thinks you made a million dollars and the other just thinks that you lost a million dollars. And what you don't want to have happen is the exchange that thinks you lost a million dollars to liquidate you. You know, you mm-hmm. want somehow to be able to transfer your gains from one place to your losses to the other place. Um, and it's really, really awkward if these two exchanges use completely different settlement and collateral systems. And so sort of the nightmare scenario is basically, you know, you've got a long position on CME and a short position on BitMEX. And then uh, Bitcoin goes up a bunch and you get liquidated on BitMEX because CME doesn't like pay you penal for a few days. Um, and uh, similarly, you run into an issue of collateral where you know, how do you collateralize all these trades? Well, you have to physically post collateral at a place like BitMEX. Um, and then at CME, you have to have some relationship with some clearing firm intermediary who's vouching for your credit or something. They don't know anything about your crypto assets. Uh, they're not going to be super excited if you're trying to say like, ah, oh, don't worry, I just sent a bunch of Ripple to this wallet address. Like you, JP Morgan, don't have to worry about me anymore. See this address. I can do like Satoshi test if you want. It's my Ripple. Like, let me trade more contracts right now on CME. I need triple the risk limits I had before. Uh, and sort of neither, you know, those paradigms just really don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And you, you sort of either want to be constantly moving your crypto around to manage your, your collateral and, and settlement and risk, or to have one settlement firm intermediary who knows about all of your money, knows about your portfolio everywhere, and knows what your risk limits should be given that, and vouches for you in all those places, and knows that you're hedged. Um, but you have these really awkward things that happen in the middle if if, thing, if places are split between the two. And so because of that, you see almost no crypto adoption of these U.S. institutional places. You know, you look at the big crypto trading firms, it's really fucking awkward to use CME, right? Because what you, what you even post is collateral there. Like when trading gets busy, how do you increase the amount you can trade there? It's a negotiation with the bank in the U.S. Like that's not how any of the rest of your flow works, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're used to just sending another 100 Bitcoin somewhere if you want to trade more. Um, and, and similarly, you don't get paid out your profit for like a while. And you're sort of like, wait, but I need this to go post this collateral on my hedge. But that, that's not how that system works. And so, and so, you know, I think that's one of the reasons. And similarly, you look at account creation. How does that work? You know, in the U.S., it's sort of like you create this big regulated corporate structure and develop relationships with clearing firms and then send the standard set of documents to each of these places. And in the rest of crypto, it's like, no, you like have this standard set of selfies that you take holding various ID cards. They submit to all the exchange places and they give you an account. Um, and, 
and you know, because all of these are, are just totally different, uh, just all of the operational aspects of these systems don't talk to each other very well. And, and I think that's, you know, you see a lot of people without any crypto experience sort of starting up the uh, Western style settlement exchanges. And I think it makes a lot of sense from a Wall Street perspective, but I don't think it makes any sense from, you know, interfacing with BitMEX or Binance. Yep. Um, so we, we just we just covered a ton there. Um, so I, I appreciate that because good lay of the land. Um, t- talk a little bit about some of the uh, the leveling up that um, that you guys are doing, both technically. So you, you mentioned the collateral problem. Um, you have you know, quite a bit going on. You've got uh, your own uh, platform token to incentivize trading. You've got um, a number of, of indices, uh, which I love that you have uh, an index that is literally called shit. Um, uh, which is low cap coins that, that, you know, people want to speculate on. Um, where, where is like the real bread and butter of the business right now? Um, and, and, and how are you guys positioned to, to take some share in what is a hyper competitive market right now, uh, on the derivative side, especially with the overseas exchanges? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, And I think that what it'd say basically is that it's not one specific thing. And part of the reason for that is that there's a lot of other derivatives platforms in crypto. They sort of all have their own unique flaws. Mm-hmm. You know, you try and trade on on you know some of the platforms, and you're like managing collateral here is a nightmare. There are ten different wallets. I need to be collateralizing some of these with ETH Classic. Like, who has spot a lot of spot ETH Classic sitting around just waiting to use it as collateral on a margin trade, on, you know, a futures trade? Um, you separately liquidate on each contract, which is a, a, a pain to manage. Uh, there's clawbacks um and then you look at some of the other places you're like well they only have like one future listed so unless a bitcoin perpetual is the thing i want to trade you know this platform won't have it you look at others their matching engines can't handle the load of peak times um and, and you look at others just like no liquidity on the books you try and buy 100 bitcoins you print it up a percent and and so i think that like you know each of these exchanges sort of has their own little niche and flaw and a lot of what we're trying to do with FTX is sort of iron out a lot of those, is to build the crypto derivatives platform that works for everyone and that sort of combines all the best features of them and fixes all of the worst features. Um, and so, you know, that that's meant a lot of different things. It's meant that we've listed a ton of futures. So, you know, obviously we have a Bitcoin perpetual future. We, in fact, have quarterly and perpetual futures on all the tokens we have. We have a bunch of tokens, not just Bitcoin, not just Bitcoin and ETH. We also have everything from, you know, uh, EOS to Algorand to BNB futures. And then, as you said, we have these index features, which are kind of cool products. They're everywhere in traditional finance, but weirdly nowhere else in crypto. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you want to just like get leverage long or short, like shit coins in general, you think that like, you know, sort of the ICO boom is just over and going to die out or that there's going to be a second wave, you can put a, a position on there, you know, shitcoin perpetual future, which has, you know, 50, uh, it's sort of, you know, an average of 50 different low market cap coins. We have a mid cap future, an altcoin future, we have an exchange token future. Do you want to sort of, uh, you know, place a trade on the performance of, you know, BNB and Leo, will be token OKB. Um, so we have a wide variety of products. Um, you know, we have a matching engine uh, aiming to you know withstand load even during really busy times. We have a ton of liquidity, I and mean, we have like you know millions of dollars every few basis points on our Bitcoin perpetual contract. Um, and uh, we have flexible collaterals. So you have one centralized collateral wallet. You put Bitcoin, ETH, USD, Tether, FTT in it, 
and use it to power all of your trading at once. You don't have to keep transferring things around. So if you want to, you can using sub accounts. And so a lot of this is just like trying to figure out, you know, what is the best version of this product? What are the best versions? You know, what are the best parts of all of these different competitors? And how can we build a product that combines all of those together? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and you know fixes all the the sort of large problems with them. Um, you know the 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 issue with all exchanges, whether you're talking about derivatives uh, or even spot markets, is, is liquidity begets liquidity, right? Um, yeah. So you know even to this day, Bitmex is is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Um, you know the the Asian exchanges in general um, that allow for margin and, and futures trading are still very large as well. You know the the Wobies and uh, Binance is the world. Um, how do you um, you, you know uh, the the goal is to build a better mousetrap, better product that solves some of these issues. But um, what is kind of the most important thing? Right. Because is it just the breadth of contracts um, that can be traded? Um, or does it does it have to do with just better collateral management and managing you know orderly liquidation so that you don't have the equivalent of like an FTX wrecked uh, on right. Twitter like 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 you do for exactly for, for yeah. some of the other and, and no it's it's a good question and sort of as you said there's this real um, sort of uh, catch twenty two that happens when you start an exchange where you can build the best product in the world but if you don't have any liquidity no customer is going to want to trade on it and if you don't have any customers liquidity fighters aren't going to be providing that much liquidity it's just not worth it mm -hmm. um and this is sort of a hard thing to jump start and this is one of the reasons that you see the early entrants into the space still dominant because you know they came when there was no one else and so everyone had to trade it there you know you look at the okx features the bitmax features um and uh and and so that was how they solved that problem but a lot of the newer entrants so the uh, you know the exchange space in general just have a huge problem. It doesn't matter what their product is. Like if they can't get much liquidity, they can't get many customers. And if they can't get many customers, they can't get much liquidity. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one sort of advantage that FTX has uh, because of Alameda. So, you know, Alameda Research is one of the biggest liquidity buyers in crypto trading, you know, billion dollars a day. Um, and uh, and it's providing liquidity on FTX. And, and you know, this meant that FTX had the most liquid order books basically in the space from the day it launched. Um, and so that was sort of its attempt to solve this, you know, this cat and mouse game where, you know, we just started out with a ton of liquidity and then we could just go straight to customers and say, hey, the exchange is already there. Like, not only do we think it's a great product, but it already has super liquid order books. You can just come and start trading. Um, and then, you know, as we build up a bigger customer base, we can sort of go back to more liquidity fire and say, and say, hey, you know, I know that this wasn't exciting at the beginning because there are no customers, but now we have customers. You know, now we're trading hundreds of millions of dollars a day. You know, we had a $1 billion volume day on, on the sort of big Bitcoin crash day. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, now now there's real activity on this exchange, there's real flow. And, and then sort of work on, on, you know, doubling back and onboarding a bunch more liquidity fighters. Um, so you bring up a good point with the affiliation with Alameda Research, um, which is where I think most of the team came from, or a good chunk of the team came from. Yep. Um, is that, um, from a regulatory perspective, what type of conflicts does that bring up, right? Because yep. you, you, you uh, one common thread um, or criticism, fair or unfair, um, and, you know, legit or, or, you know, not for, for, you know, some of the top 
exchanges has been, are you trading against your customers, right? And, right. and, and uh, when you're thinking about market making, are you basically just front running them and, and you know, doing all the right. shady shit because uh, you're based in Asia and you're not regulated in the US. So like there's, there's a general, like at least in, in the Western sphere, as you know, like there's a bias against, well, um, the authorities aren't like super aware of, of how this market is structured. So we're just going to yep. be automatically skeptical. Uh, skeptical. And when, when I think someone hears um, that, you know, oh, well, Alameda just moved his market-making activity over here and helped us bootstrap, um, it, it gives people, uh, I think, a little bit of pause. So how do you manage that and, and kind of what are the legal ramifications for, for that affiliation? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, and basic answer is, uh, you know, I totally understand where people are coming from here. Um, you know, I, I totally understand the worry. Uh, you know, I guess what I can say is sort of the following things. First is that, you know, Alameda is, uh, you know, it's a liquidity provider on FTX. So it's, it's, it's really good for the exchange. But, you know, its account is is, uh, is sort of like other people's accounts. Like it's not, uh, you know, looking at, at other people's orders. It's not front-running orders. It's not doing anything like that. It's just providing liquidity. Um, and, uh, you know, if you sort of look at the incentives also, like the thing that matters here is is sort of making, you know, FTX as successful as possible. That's that's by far the, the primary goal here. And, you know, to that extent, like what's going to enable that? Like the thing that's going to enable that is just, you know, making it as liquid as possible and, and as, as good of a place as possible for customers to trade on. And that's what sort of matters long term. That's that's what the real dominant factor is here. Um, and, you know, I think medium term we'd love for other liquidity buyers to replace Alameda on FTX. I think it'd just be great. Um, and, you know, if there, if there are any who are interesting and want to, uh, you know, we, we, we'd love to have you. So, um, uh, you know, this is not sort of a dedication to Alameda being the liquidity fighter here. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's just like uh, a thing which has really helped the exchange grow early on. Um, but, uh, you know, they're not doing anything other than providing liquidity. And we, you know, we'd love to have someone else doing it if possible. Got it. Um, we, we talked about the split between derivatives and, um, and, and spot prices. Uh, and it's about 50-50 US made in crypto, which is actually low compared to traditional markets. Derivatives markets yep. can be much larger. Um, where, um, where, where do you see that going in the next year? So, so has there been a, a trajectory, you know, obviously started at zero and then the introduction of BitMEX was probably the first um, real liquidity for, for futures. Um, it's now up to 50-50. Where, where was it this time last year and where do you expect it'll be in a year from now? Yeah, so, you know, the 50-50 thing's actually been somewhat constant over time. Um, and I, th I think it's going to move a bit more in the derivatives direction. I think we've already seen a little bit of a shift, but I think this is going to accelerate. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of expect that over time, um, we're, you know, we are just going to see increasingly um, that uh, more and more volumes happening in derivatives. Personally, so we see more types of derivatives, you know, not just sort of futures and perpetual swaps, um, but partially as, you know, people come in who want to trade more and more volume, and mm -hmm. that sort of is going to be the center of liquidity, the easiest way to trade large size, um, the easiest way to, to get put on deltas, the easiest way to hedge, um, and, and sort of the trading space becomes more separated from the holding physical token space. Um, I think that's one thing that's kept spot volume relatively high in crypto is sort of, you know, 
in general, if you look at sort of someone who wants to own a lot of crypto, um, this often also is sort of someone who doesn't want to just have some, you know, unsettling derivatives contract on some exchange. Often they they want to physically have a coin in their wallet. Yep. And and so I think that's one thing which has sort of been driving spot volume as well. Um, on uh, on on you know spot versus uh, OTC. So, so how much is um, in your estimation coming OTC versus settled on exchange for for um, some of the big movers and shakers because right. it, it's going to vary by region. Um, yep. But uh, that I think has has swung wildly. But it, it seems like fifty fifty is probably the right uh, the the right bogey for OTC versus exchange. Uh, is is that is that low? Um, I would it, guess that that's really high. I, I think OTC is way lower than exchange. Really? Um, now, it's obviously hard to tell. And the reason it's hard to tell is I don't know what I don't know, right? Like if yeah. there's $10 billion a day of OTC volume going up somewhere that I never see, then then that would totally shift this. And, it, you know, I can't disprove yeah. that. Well, um, there, the, there's, you know, there's also an element of the infrastructure is so much better now um, and that the spreads are so much tighter that, that yep. the OTC business has gotten harder as well. Exactly. And I think this has shifted over time. I think there used to be more OTC volume relative to exchange. And it's been dying out as more and more people just start going to exchanges. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and not not just yeah. with, with options and, and, and futures, but um, with uh, some of the new prime brokerage services and, and, and the smart, smart order routing, trading tools yep. and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, one thing also that happened, frankly, is a lot of early OTC customers were really price insensitive. You know, a lot of what was driving this insane early OTC trading volume was uh, completely nuts trades. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I sort of don't know how else to describe them, but you know, Coinbase would be uh, a basis point wide, and an OTC trade for ten bitcoins would go up a percent and a half away from the market. Mm-hmm. And you're sure, like, how did that happen? The answer is, well, I don't know. That's what the OTC writer quoted, and the customer didn't check that he didn't say anything or care. So that's where it traded. Yep. Um, and uh, and sort of over time, a lot of those customers have started realizing, like, wow, that's bad pricing. Um, and obviously, you know, you have to make into account slippage and exchange fees um, and liquidity on exchanges. Like, it's not like you can just get anything done at mid. Like, that's not how markets work. And and there should be a spread on OTC courts, but it should be sort of a reasonable one. And I think that, that that's come in a lot over time and taken a lot of the sort of froth out of the, uh, the crypto OTC market. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. Um, uh, on a... 
kind of mainstreaming front, if you will, there's um, there's a couple things to think about in terms of market structure. Um, price discovery seems to be happening in Asia and on these futures exchanges, uh, especially, I'd say. Um, yep. And I think that's given some of the U.S. regulators in particular some pause because, oh, these exchanges, are they properly regulated? Are they, you know... Um, are, are they kind of against what, what the CFTC is, is typically um, coordinated? Uh, and the answer might be yes and no, because it's just a new uh, asset type, uh, no matter how well run the compliance teams and, and kind of product teams are at these exchanges. Um, there's, a, there's, there's two questions here. Um, one is, um, do you believe, how many of the crypto markets do you believe are actually efficient markets right now? Where, where where spot price is fairly reliable um, versus and 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 you know difficult to manipulate. Um, yep. And then that's going to lead into my second question. Um, but but let's start there because um, that seems to be the billion dollar you know maybe trillion dollar question for for crypto in terms of opening up access to structured financial products in a more regulated right. realm. So the first thing that I would say is. I think I'm mostly going to ignore, um, you know, sort of, I'm mostly going to ignore fake exchanges here because I think they're in a category of their own. You see these exchanges claiming a billion dollars a day volume that actually trade $800,000 a day. Their markets are 2% wide. They have some dumb bot printing trades at mid that are physically impossible. Um, And at this point, they're sort of old news almost. Mm-hmm. They're a big deal a year ago, and at this point, everyone's just gotten tired of them. Um, you know, trans mining sort of a dirty word. Everyone's realized it at this point that like that just means fake volume. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and, and so you know, you, you can look at, at these exchanges. Uh, they're exchanges you've never heard of that are at the top of coin market cap, and you just investigate them for ten minutes. You're like, hey, this is obviously fake. Um, and it's not used in any derivatives pricing. There aren't that many real customers there. No one tries to do a large trade there. Um, so I'm going to kind of put those off to the side because those, like, you will not get good pricing if you try and trade on those. Um, but also, no one really does. Yep. And they're not tied to any of this or core infrastructure in crypto. Um, and instead, I want to talk about sort of the exchanges which are the most core to crypto. And, and for those, I'd sort of, you know, what are they? Um, I think a decent metric, if you go to ftx.com slash volume monitor, mm-hmm. um, you'll see sort of our version of what we think the real volume is. And, and you know, this this is like roughly what we think sort of the real exchanges are. But, you know, basically you have sort of the, the large Asian exchanges, OKX Finance and Huobi. Um, you have the U.S. exchanges, which are way smaller, but still pretty important because they are the USD fiat on-ramp. Um, so you have Coinbase, uh, Kraken, uh, Bitstamp, Gemini, Bitrex, um, and then you have the derivatives exchanges, um, and and you know it's Bitmex, OKX will be Deribit, Bitflyer, FTX, um, and uh, and so basically you know that's sort of where the real activity is. And you also have some regional exchanges, um, you know the Japanese exchanges, the Korean exchanges. I'm also going to kind of put to a side. Because while they're very important to those countries' crypto ecosystems, uh, they're not very relevant to the U.S. crypto ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And they're not very important to the derivatives crypto ecosystem because derivatives don't key to KRW markets. Um, so if, if you look at sort of the core exchanges to the ecosystem, um, you know, on any exchange, if you try and do a gigantic trade, uh, you're going to move the market and you're going to create a premium. 
uh, the liquidity is not that deep in crypto. And you know, what does gigantic mean? I think gigantic, you know, you're usually talking, you know, tens of millions of dollars of Bitcoin. So yep. you try and sell $30 million of Bitcoin on some exchange, you're going to move the market. Um, and, uh, and you'll probably get a bad fill. You'll probably end up, you know, selling it way below what the fair price is, way below what you get on other exchanges because you just blow the liquidity out on that market. But for any of these real exchanges, if you sell $2 million, um, as long as it's not a market order on some of the least liquid of them, you're basically okay. Like, you know, if you sell $2 million over the course of an hour on any of the exchanges I mentioned, you're fine. Um, and, and so I think the question, you know, how is crypto, you know, there are arbitragers who are sort of keeping these exchanges in line. And so you, you, you look at like the Gemini order book, which trades what $10 million a day or something, mm-hmm. the Gemini Bitcoin USD order book. But if you sold $60 million on it tomorrow, spread out evenly over the day, it'd be fine. And the reason is that, yes, yeah, sure, you're only trades $10 million usually, but there are market makers there. And if you actually do have that much to sell, you're going to end up losing five bips or something, 10 bips to your impact. Uh, you know, you'll end up selling a little bit below where Coinbase is, but it's not going to be a massive divergence. Um, because at some point people just jump in and buy. Yeah. How, how um, has anyone done a good job of tracking that? I mean, you know, our team, obviously we're a data company, right? So so our team has, has thought about how to come up with better liquidity adjusted metrics, yeah. um, both for, for exchanges and, and also just trading pairs. Um, but it, it's an important point about Gemini, right? I think if you look at the, you know, even on adjusted volume, the top 20 exchanges, I think they're probably near the bottom of that top 20. Oh, they're not in the top 20. Well, and I'm not it, talking about coin market cap. I'm talking about like, you know. Uh, even the, real volume, they're not in the top 20. Really? Uh, I think, yeah, yeah. So even if you look at actually real volume, Gemini is quite small volume wise. It, it's a factor of 10 smaller than Coinbase or Bitstamp. Um, so, you know, for context, you know, I think that there's something like 25 exchanges that have traded um, at least uh, $13 million in the last day of real volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we pull up Gemini here, how much is it done? It's done 8 million. So I think they're probably somewhere around 30 uh, in, to 35 in terms of real volume. Got it. But you would still, uh, again, say because they have these these market makers, the the true liquidity at Gemini. So, so what traders care about, they, they don't give a shit like what the coin market cap number is, right? They want to right. know where, they where they'll- they care about is how they can trade, right? How, how can I trade only... with the lowest slippage with the kind of most reliability, exactly. right? So um, how, how do you how do you bake that in, right? Is that just something that, that right. kind of the OTC desk will do their their own calculations with their risk team or their, or their you know, trading team yeah. or- um, are there any good resources or, or really any way to measure this right now? Because that measurement um, seems to be uh, an input to just kind of assessing whether the yep. market structure for any given pair is healthy. And that, in turn, is is probably the most important missing input for something like the Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. Exactly. And I think that that's a, that's a good point. And, and here's sort of my basic answer to it is people use volume. Um, because it's what coin market cap chose. That, that's why that's whatever in quotes. Um, and volume got a little bit polluted, but it's also never been quite the right metric. And the reason is this arbitrage thing. Something that's really easy to arbitrage, even if no one usually trades it, is going to have more liquidity than you'd think. Um, and so I think in general, order book depth is a decent metric. I think if you do something like you look at the Bitcoin USD contract, um, you whether it's spot or futures, 
and you look at basically how much impact would you have if you sent a market order to buy 100 bitcoins? I think that's you know generally a pretty reasonable question to ask. And what you'll see, for instance, is you know on Gemini, I think the answer, despite the fact that it's almost no volume, if you market order by 100 bitcoins, I think you're gonna have like 40 basis points of impact or something on the market, mm-hmm. um, which is you know it's real impact, but it's not absolutely massive impact. Um, it's a hell of a lot higher than other exchanges. You know, if you want to buy 100 Bitcoin futures on FTX, you have zero impact. There's that, there's that size at top of book all the time. And, you know, same with BitMEX. If you do it on, for instance, you know, OKX futures, I think you probably have like 15 basis points of impact or something. So so in general, I think this is a pretty reasonable metric is, and obviously I made up 100 Bitcoins, but I think that's like about the right size to measure yep. in terms of anyone's going to be fine for one Bitcoin. and any, any order book is not going to be able to support a $100 million market order. Um, but, but you know, I think if you look at something like 100 Bitcoins as a typical, you know, like what's like, you know, a sizable but not ridiculous order to send um, that, you know, look at order, you know, how far you have to go to find 100 Bitcoins on the order book. That gives you a pretty good impact, uh, measure of how much liquidity there is, how hard it is to impact the price, um, how resilient the order book will be. And, um so that's, that's sort of the first thing that I would say. Um, and in general, you know, how does crypto look there? It looks okay, I would say. I mean, it's a hell of a lot worse than equity markets, than, than liquid equity markets. You know, this is not the S&P 500. Um, this, this is a lot less liquid than that. Um, but, uh, you know, orders like that aren't going to destroy markets. It's not going to destroy any real exchanges uh, order book. Um, and, and so that's sort of the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing that I'd say is because of arbitrageurs, um, you know, the difference between different exchanges just isn't that big um, in terms of this. It, it, it's really important if you measure your PL in in basis points. You know, yep. if, if you're saying like, do I make ten basis points on this trade? So it really fucking matters where you trade. If what you're saying is like, is this index correct to within a percent? It doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Um, and so you know, if you look at sort of you know, what happens when there is a, a sort of large order that's sent, um, it'll move all markets. You know, maybe it'll move one market a little bit more, but unless it's really, really massive, and by there I'm talking like $100 million, um, it's, it's you know, our treasures are going to keep things sort of in line, again, with, you know, 10 basis points or so of leeway. Um, and so, you know, what you see generally is when there's a $10 million sold on BitMEX, um, yeah, it'll move markets a little bit, but it's not going to create a gigantic arbitrage opportunity. You know, it's not like big, you know, Bitstamp's order book goes to shit or anything like that yeah. when that happens. Like, it's just, yeah, I don't know, someone sold some Bitcoin, so markets are down a little bit. Like, that's how markets work. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the, the way to standardize that, that across exchanges, across, you know, foreign currency pairs, um, you know, whatever, um, and, then, and then trading pairs, you know, on those exchanges might be to just pick a number that's around 100 bitcoins, right? So yeah. we'll think about this in like million dollar orders, right? What is exactly. a million dollar order um, going to do to the market uh, if you use uh, a, a prime broker, right? Something like Tagomi or, or one of these you know, yep. new um, services that's out there that caters to institutions, does all that work for you or, or, or really is a proxy for what the professional trading desks have already built themselves right, to, to yep. do smart order routing. Exactly. Um, and uh, least cost routing. And then, uh, you know, if, if you um, have that, I think that's probably relevant, not just for Bitcoin, but, but for, you know, all assets. 
Um, and then you can yeah. start to do a little bit more, you know, analysis around the exchanges and around the um, uh, around each individual submarket. Um, yeah. That that to, like you know to, to your point, like a million dollar order on, on Bitcoin is going to be gobbled up by any of the major exchanges, right? With with basically yeah. no slippage. Um, there does seem to be though a pretty steep drop off beyond that. Um, yeah. And, uh, and 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 so you expect to see some of these wild swings in um, in day-to-day spot prices for things outside of the top 10 especially um, because yeah. they can be you know driven up or down or, or manipulated much more easily um, yeah the the other thing that I want to talk about though and I, I have not asked this during a single interview yet um, yep uh, and I'm excited to because it's one of the rare people that actually might have some insight into it that's not just total bullshit. Um, and that is what the hell happened last week with the 20% drawdown, right? Was was yeah. there something technical uh, that took place um, yeah. where you saw that and you said you had like an immediate like snap um, idea yeah. of what had happened and, and, and just structurally what, what, what happened and with what authority if you have a thesis, like can, can you kind of put your finger on, on yeah. that? Versus like yeah. the, the retail crypto Twitter know-it-all that, that actually doesn't know at all what the fuck just happened. <laughs> right. So, yeah. No, absolutely. Just briefly on the first thing that you said, um, yeah, you know, it, liquidity really drops off after the top 10 coins or so. You know, I think that, you know, if you look at the markets for, you know, coin number 40 on coin market cap, like, yeah, those are not super liquid. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would not trust an index on those to withstand millions of dollars of flow. Um, but you know, for the top coins, I think the answer is, and again, I would not trust a single snap. And so I think if you're designing a derivative in crypto, you don't want it to expire to a single snapped data point. Yep. If you expire to an hour long TWAP, you're basically fine. Um, if you expire to a single data point, then someone could send a giant order in that single data point and the market might you know print down a percent and then print right back up as people bought it up. But as long as you sort of have a long enough time window for the top coins and you're using reasonable exchanges, you know, and the amount of flow that you're expecting during this snap, during this period is going to be in the, you know, millions or tens of millions, not billions, you know, you're yep. okay. Yep. Um, so to go to your point of what happened, obviously I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just bullshitting like everyone else here is, um, but I have a guess. Um, so maybe I'll start with like, why did Bitcoin start going down at all? That I really don't know. Um, but if I had to hazard a guess, I mean, it's sort of what a lot of people are saying, right? Like it's happened with CME, it happened with Bact, a product that got a lot of hype launched and then didn't do anything. And, you know, you see this pattern, uh, if I had to guess, you might see people were getting really long crypto in anticipation of Bact, planning to sell out right after the launch. And the launch happened and then they sold out. And the launch happened and it traded like, you know, $400,000. So there's, you know, the giant inflows that they're hoping came didn't come. So I think that's sort of step one. I, I don't know, but if I would guess, I would guess it's people who are just sort of closing down positions yep. after backed. Um, okay, so so that that that's step one. And now you see like you know whatever ten million dollars maybe of Bitcoin are sold because of that. I'm making that up. That that would serve my order of magnitude estimate. Um, you know maybe twenty or something. Um, and where were they sold? It's really hard to tell because at the beginning everything's in line. There's no big arbitrages. Like, where is the seller happening? I mean, all the markets are sort of moving down a little bit in the in-sync. Um, uh, and, but then you hit the dust spiral. And, and what happens is sort of the same thing that happened when Bitcoin fell down to 4,000 last year. 
except this time it's BitMax instead of OpayX, um, where uh, people have on huge fucking margin positions. And it's not necessarily that there's one whale who has a billion dollar margin position on, it's that there's like 10,000 people mm-hmm. with a large variety of positions, but they all got long, um, or a lot of them got long. And a lot of them put on 20x levered positions somewhere around 9,500, um, you know, somewhere 95,000 um, and if you add up all of their position sizes, um, you get a billion dollars um, or, you know, maybe $700 million or something like that. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are going to be some big positions in there. There's going to be a lot of small ones. Where are these numbers coming from? They're basically coming from looking at things like open interest on BitMEX perpetual futures. Um, that's sort of like a good way to get an order of magnitude estimate of how large of levered positions the world has on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of noise in that. That's not going to tell you the exact number because... Some people are short, some people are long, some people are basically unleveraged. There's other platforms to whatever. We're just trying to get sort of a rough story here. So Bitcoin sells off a few percent, and now someone gets liquidated on BitMEX. And, and it starts out just one guy. They had, a, whatever, a $5 million position or something. Um, they got 20x long. Bitcoin's now down 5%. So they get liquidated. BitMEX sells it off. Um, that sell-off sells 5 million bucks, moves Bitcoin down another 20 bips. And now the next most levered guy starts getting liquidated. And and now you just this spiral starts right where this entire seven hundred million dollar net levered position between a lot of different parties gets sold off as you know person piece after piece after piece of it is triggered by the previous pieces selling off um, and you know this is sort of like what happened in two thousand eight right where like you had a lot of people who were extremely leveraged long uh, shit real estate in the U S right and uh, and. Yeah, part of the problem is the real estate was shit. So you need that part. But also part of the problem was the world was really leveraged long. And so someone gets liquidated. They have to close down their position, sell off all their shit real estate. There are no buyers. The price starts tanking. And now for analysis position starts going underwater. And bank after bank after bank has to sell off their crashing assets. And they crash even more. And in fact, at the bottom, they probably crashed too much. Like some of these houses, yeah, they weren't worth what they were originally sold for. But they're probably worth more than than you know their lowest point but there's just massive sellers of them because mm-hmm. everyone was going bankrupt who had who had a long position there so you see the same thing in bitcoin and what happened well, is and, and it's, it's, like, it's especially true in uh, with these assets because you you know they're they're priced not valued uh since they're currencies yeah. right so so exactly. it's entirely sentiment driven Exactly. Um, you look at something like Apple, if it crashes 80% in a day, Warren Buffett just comes in and says, fuck it. I'm just going to buy the company and collect dividends forever and make a lot of money. Yep. Right. But with Bitcoin, if it goes down 80%, does it need to go up? It doesn't need to go up. Exactly. It's not like it's an arbitrage to buy it at $2,000. You know, and, and it's exactly as you said, right? If it's crashing, like, it's really hard to know why someone will necessarily buy it. And and so anyway, you have this $700 million getting liquidated piece by piece by piece. And um, and you saw this happen. There's like something like that large of liquidation sell side on the BitMEX, Bitcoin, uh, USD perpetual swap order book. Yep. And you can look at changes in open interest. You can look at they publish when there are liquidation orders. You can look at the just constant 10, 10 million to max they will liquidate at once, but it's just constantly max size for like minutes. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, those all point towards hundreds of millions of dollars of liquidated sell orders. And yeah, if you sell a billion dollars of Bitcoin in a day, um, do you move it down 20%? Yeah, I think you might. Um, 
you know, and, and as you said, it's Bitcoin's pretty resilient to a million, five million, ten million. It's not super resilient to a billion. Billions big order in Bitcoin. You sell a billion dollars of it, it's a fuck top. Yeah. It's gonna move markets. Um and, it's, it's uh, basically like all of a, a day's spot liquidity. Oh, it's way more than that. Because it's 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 not all of a day's volume, but there's a lot of back and forth volume, right? Mm-hmm. If there's twenty billion dollars that trade in day, what's the net flow? The net flow is probably like fifty million, right? Like it's probably that, like that low? You know, there's yeah. I, I think it's relatively low. So part of it obviously is you have like HFT firms pinging between different exchanges. So the same trade yep. will cause the a dollar to trade on many venues, you know, scraping off a bip here and there. Yep. Um some of it's that, you know, there's sort of a balance between buyers and sellers and the price just keeps changing until you reach an equilibrium where there's about as many buyers as sellers. Um, and and yeah, if I had to guess, I guess $50 million is about the net flow that you see in average day in Bitcoin. Are there, um, are there good resources for, for people to track net order flow? No, I'm totally bullshitting. And, and I mean, I don't even know how to calculate this. I, there's no public resource for this. This is just me sort of going off intuitions of what's it look like in traditional finance? What's your, a, tri- a, a typical ratio between gross volume and difference between net buyers and net sellers? Yeah. Um, combined with thinking about how much impact would this have? Mm-hmm. You know, if you think there's $200 million a day of net volume, it's a little weird if prices don't move much in an average day. Yep. Um, and so, I don't feel confident in this $50 million number, but that, if I had to guess, that's how I ballpark it. Um, and so I, I ballpark this as, you know, 10 to 20 times that. And yeah, if Bitcoin moves a percentage to an average day, and that day someone sold 10 to 20 times an average day's net order flow, yeah, moved, yeah, 10 to 20 times a percent or two. It's about right. You know, it's, yep. I mean, again, these are really ballpark numbers, but the story is it sort of like checks out with that. It, like, that is, if you had to guess what impact would $700 million have, yeah, 20% on Bitcoin, That that if you sell it off in a day, seems plausible. I don't think it would have that much impact if you sold it off way slower. Because um, sure. if you sold it off way slower, you give liquidity providers a lot more time to get bids out. Um, and the whole thing here, it's not like they're going to be willing to get super long if it's slow, but maybe you avoid the death spiral, right? Yep. And the big thing here is that it's not like $700 million really wanted to sell their Bitcoins, right? Probably like $50 million did. And $650 million got liquidated against their will because their account ran out of collateral on BitMEX because markets were crashing in there along. And so a lot of this is not actual real sellers. It's not like people who thought Bitcoin was worthless. It's people who just got liquidated and they had no choice but to, you know, but to sell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I guess the one thing that, um, that, that, you know, should, strike people as scary um, under that scenario is that like the black swan event where uh, Bitcoin truly is banned um, by a major economy, right? Yeah. And now you've got legal issues at all the major exchanges and custodians. How do they handle this unwinding? Our assets frozen, you know, and and then all the activity is, is basically taking place overseas. You know, you could, you could conceivably see, you know, a billion dollars in net order flow at a macro event like that. Um, and that's only a fraction of a percent of the total market cap. Um, and yet yeah. it could still cause a 30, 40 percent drawdown potentially. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I think that's absolutely possible. I mean, or more, point is, or more. Yeah. Or, or more, I mean, who the hell knows how much? I don't even know how to estimate that, but there's no there's no real limit, right? And that's sort of the, the scary the, thing. The, the issue is that there, there is kind of an asymmetric bet 
to the like upside, but but it doesn't go up as verti- as, as quickly uh, or as vertically in a you know even a very positive development um, where like a big institutional investor starts you know announces that they're buying in or you know government yeah. blesses it or you know whatever. Um, not nearly the same impact um, as yep. as you'd see if if, if we're the other way around. Yep, that's absolutely right. And and, and yeah, I think that, I think that's right. Like I think Bitcoin's it's pretty resilient to small amounts. It's not clear it's very resilient to large flow. And and you know it's I just don't know the answer, right? Like it just really depends on oh boy, like exactly how levered are people on Bitcoin? You can't yeah. even tell that a lot of it's off exchange. You know, it's flipped between a lot of venues. Like you can't just look at open interest to get that answer. Although it can give you some sort of guide for an order of magnitude estimate, right? But then you just have whales who so they're not even levered. But if Bitcoin goes down a lot, they're like, "Fuck it, I'm done with this shit." Yeah. And they sell off their Bitcoin, and then and and now all of a sudden, that that's another death spiral, right? That it's like combines with the previous one. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that like this sort of black swan event in Bitcoin is pretty plausible, especially as you said, this isn't this isn't like a company with a dividend stream that's going to back. The, the coin, right? So it's not like a really rich guy will obviously come in to buy up all the Bitcoins if they crash. Maybe they will. I think it's plausible, but it, it's not guaranteed. Yep. It might not happen. Well, on that very cheery note, uh, I think this has been uh, super informative. Uh, I certainly enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure our listeners will as well um, to, to hear straight from the horse's mouth how these markets actually are structured. Um, which you know can be a little bit of a black box. Um, where can people find you, Sam? I know I tweeted out the link, but for our listeners that don't have access to Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you can find FTX at FTX.com. Uh, it's uh, FoxtrotTangoXray.com. Uh, you can find uh, us on Telegram. Uh, there's a link on the website. You can find me on Twitter. I'm SPF underscore Alameda. And uh, you can find Alameda Research at alameda-research.com. Excellent. Well, Sam, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Everybody that's listening, I will be, along with a couple of my colleagues from Asari, in Osaka uh, in about 36 hours. Uh, Very excited for that. Uh, And uh, looking forward to the week ahead at DEF CON, where we will be doing a a number of live interviews there. So uh, until then, uh, appreciate you joining us. Peace. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.